This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Citizen Radio, Mumia Abu-Jamal, The Daily Show, Counterspin, The Progressive, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, The Young Turks, and Countdown with Keith Olbermann with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion. So, guess what, everybody? Uh, the U.S. poured about $6.6 billion, give or take, into Iraq. And according to a new report that was uh, described in the Los Angeles Times, for the first time, federal auditors are suggesting that some, I love this, some or all of the cash may have been stolen, not just mislaid in an accounting error. So I'm going to read that again. (laughs) Okay, can you imagine if I ran a business, right? And you're the boss. All right. And I go, you call me in your office because you're like, man, this company seems to be hemorrhaging money. And I come in and I'm like, hey. Allison. Yeah. Um, Is any of this money stolen? Oh, you mean the six bill? Um, some of it or all maybe stolen? I'm I'm sorry. Uh, yes. There's there's a huge gap Mm -hmm. in between some and all. Like some could be like no, no, it's some or all. Well, (laughs) it's just some or all. You know, even though you're saying at all a little quieter, I can still hear both of those words. No, 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 it's not a big deal because it's like all right. You think you think all of the six million dollars might have been stolen, but it's just some or all. But you have to understand that some could mm-hmm. be, we have $6 billion, mm-hmm. we were short $10, mm-hmm. so I took that $10 mm-hmm. out of my husband's wallet, mm-hmm. put it in. So some of it, so all mm-hmm. could be $6 billion, $6 billion. Right, right, right. I hear what you're saying, but just know that some, but probably definitely all of it was stolen. Okay. All of it. Oh. Now, if I end scene if i did that i would go to jail you would be in prison very much so but because it's the u.s government they get a little paragraph in the la times that some or all of it might have been (laughs) stolen and not just mislaid in an accounting error what the fuck and i take it this will be the last we ever hear of it oopsie so stolen from well, remember in the first days when they were trying to get money into the country, they were literally just putting it on flatbed trucks and like sending it into the desert. Right. So it's very likely that's that... like a dangles plan. Strap well, all the cash. who do you think was in charge of it? Come on now. To a truck. Come on, son. <laughs> and send it out in the desert. Nothing can go wrong. So, I mean, corrupt officials, um, it probably, a lot of it fell into the hands of the insurgents, I'm sure, you know? Right. Uh, war zones are chaotic. That shit happens. That's why it's really important not to go into the war zones in the first place. So, I mean, the same shit happens in Afghanistan as well. Afghanistan's uh, government is incredibly corrupt. And, yeah. you know, the drug dealers are basically Karzai's brothers, a huge opium dealer. And this is where we're pouring our money into. And at the same time, we're saying, sorry, teachers, sorry, police officers, sorry, firefighters. We don't have enough money for you. We don't have enough money to maintain our infrastructure. A levy just burst. Uh, I was watching the news and a levy just burst in Missouri, I think. Yeah. Uh, that shit happens when the infrastructure gets old. We were on top of the world. On top of the world. On, 
Mad in the Middle East. Americans may have voted in the last presidential election for an end to war, but wars have multiplied with the advent of the Obama administration. As I wrote several years ago, the awesome powers granted to the Bush administration now lie in new hands, and presidents aggregate power. They don't willingly give it up. Perhaps first among these powers is the power to wage wars. As of this writing, the United States is engaged in at least four and maybe five armed actions. Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and Yemen. And, as drones slam bombs into homes and villages in Pakistan, it too must be added to the mix. To be realistic, there is no peace on the horizon, and perhaps more and broader war. Despite the many justifications raised by politicians, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, terrorism, these seem more pretexts than reasons, for without the CIA, MI6, and Pakistan's intelligence agency, ISI, these bodies wouldn't exist, for they were assembled, trained, armed, and activated under their auspices. They are Western creations, period. If you doubt this, read Crossing Zero, the AFPAC War at the Turning Point of American Empire by Elizabeth Gould and Paul Fitzgerald published this year by City Lights. But war does far more than excite public passions. It confuses people. It demands their unthinking allegiance. It feeds on the very lives of young men and women. And those it doesn't kill, it poisons with a virus of violence, which, unleashed abroad, often returns home to shatter homes, families, and communities. It would be challenging to count the wives or children who were beaten or abused by returning soldiers. Indeed, the levels of suicide among armed forces shows us that war attacks the self. The clearest explanation for these wars was articulated several years ago by President Carter's former National Security Advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and the prime architect of the Afghan war against the Soviets by the Mujahideen. In a 1997 article in Foreign Affairs magazine, Brzezinski gave the following take on the importance of Eurasia. Eurasia is home to most of the world's politically assertive and dynamic states. All the historical pretenders to global power originated in Eurasia. The world's most populous aspirants to regional hegemony, China and India, are in Eurasia, as are all the potential political or economic challengers to American primacy. After the United States, the next six largest economies and military spenders are there, as are all but one of the world's overt nuclear powers. Eurasia accounts for 75% of the world's population, 60% of its GNP, and 75% of its energy resources. That's it. Energy, resources, oil. That's what it's all about. That's all it's ever been about. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. What could I say?
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Our three wars. Well, a worthy start. So, oh, I'm sorry. A worthy start. So where are we going? Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya? The United States reportedly ramping up airstrikes against Al-Qaeda in Yemen. Wait, we're bombing Yemen now, too? I guess that explains the president's new banner. Ah, mission expanded. Uh, yeah, we've been, we've been secretly hitting terrorist compounds in Yemen with the cooperation of their president, Saleh. How's he doing? A senior U.S. official says the president had shrapnel wounds and severe burns to his face and chest from an attack on the presidential palace Friday. The government insists he'll return after undergoing treatment in Saudi Arabia. Really? He's coming back. I see Yemen's President Saleh feels the Yemeni insurgents who launched a mortar attack on him while he was praying was a temporary setback. That he still has the people's support. Although, if you look at the results of the latest presidential popularity poll in Yemen, I believe that's Yemen for strongly disapprove. It is interesting, Saleh still wins in a head to head with Romney. Crack open the new issue of Newsweek magazine and you'll see Christopher Dickey writing about the good old days of Arab dictatorships. Dickey tells readers that American spies have nostalgia for a more autocratic Arab world. Quote, you know, back before dictators started toppling in the Middle East, back when suspected bad guys could be snatched off a street somewhere and delivered to the not-so-tender mercies of interrogators in their home countries, back when thuggish tyrants, however ugly, were at least predictable, close quote. One senior intelligence officer tells Dickey that all this celebration of democracy is just bullshit, a view Dickey doesn't seem to challenge much. In Egypt, for example, Dickey explains how Hosni Mubarak's failure to hand over power to his torturing intelligence chief Omar Suleiman was bad news for U.S. policymakers, who may have lost a vital link in their interrogation network.
Dickey's explanation, though, reveals a logical flaw. Egypt were close partners in the U.S. rendition program when the Bush administration pushed hard for torturers to deliver the kind of intelligence they wanted to hear, like intelligence linking Saddam Hussein with al-Qaeda, for instance. The fact that such a piece in Newsweek can lament the loss of such intelligence as a blow to U.S. interests is quite a feat. You tell me lies, lies, lies Sweet little lies When I can't unbear the truth You tell me lies, lies, lies Sweet little lies Help me make them all come true Tell me that the rain won't fall today Jamie, back to the world affair front. Okay. Uh, The Iraqi parliament speaker has told Al Jazeera that the amount of Iraqi money unaccounted for by the U.S. is $18.7 billion. Oh, homie, we'll get that back to you. Which is three times more than the initially reported figure of $6.6 billion. Awesome. Where's the money? All right. I think we should reenact how this conversation went down. Okay. So would you like to play the part of Iraq? I'm not positive where this bit's going. Right, so, not, so Jamie, you, you just does it pl- look like I have a plan? Oh, no. So uh, you, you just play whatever bit you're most comfortable with. Okay. And I'll try to, I'll okay. try to hang in there. I'm just going to reenact exactly how it went down. Do I still get to be in it or did I just get knocked out of it? No. You, I'm just going to confidently reenact what the united states did so you're gonna be both parts yes so So i'm not in this anymore no you're in it for fuck's sake you're a rock oh i'm a rock did you ever take improv no that's all i needed to know was who i was hey uh hello give me my money back yeah you know how we said that we lost 6.6 bill oh no it's actually more like 8.18.7 billion oh no yeah it's pretty heavy um we had the money in the desert and then there was a donkey and we were like oh no and then the donkey took the money oh i'm sorry you're not kidding because i was doing my funny accent because i thought you were fucking kidding where's my money uh yeah like i said we were in the desert and we had the 18.7 bill and i totally had it and then there was this like donkey right but that's like a lot of money that's like so much money that i could see like a bill or two flying off in like the desert wind like i get that yeah right but feasibly losing that kind of quantity of anything seems impossible just on the size alone i know dude and i'm totally bummed uh but like I said, there was this donkey, and then the donkey looked at me, and I was all like, oh, no, it's a donkey. And then it's gone. 18.7 bill. I'm really sorry. I'm totally bummed. Now, here's what I would do if I was Iraq. Okay. That will never happen. Uh, hey, you like that leg of yours? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Give me my money! Oh, Where's no. my fucking money? My leg's gone. Why do you still seem calm? I don't know. It's probably all the opium. <laughs> I'm giving him a backstory as a drug addict. It's sad now. Okay. All right. Now I'll be I'll be America's mother dealing All with right. America and his drug I problem. I like this. Okay. Hey, mom. What's going on? You know, honey, you can talk to me about anything. If you have a problem, we're here to help you. Oh, uh, I'm so glad you said that because you're my mom. 
uh, I had 18.7 bill in the desert, and then this donkey came and looked at me, and I got freaked out because okay. it was heavy, and I ran. Clearly, this would never happen in real life. No one is that stupid to lose that amount of somebody else's 18. money. 18.7 bill. This has to be a, a, a hallucination of some sort. You're back on drugs. We just want to help you. Let's take you to a treatment facility. Mom, while I do love opium, as you know... Okay, wait, now that made me, uh, so now I'll be Opium, and this will be the love story between Opium and America. Love it. Okay. Hey, Opium, I love you so much. Oh, give me your face. I would like $18.7 billion worth of you. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll put it inside you. And that's where the money went. Now to the uprising in Syria, dramatic new developments, including a reversal today by the government of President Bashar al-Assad. The Syrian leader now saying he'll grant amnesty to protesters arrested for various alleged crimes. Wow. Um, that's actually kind of uh, good news. Assad is a brutal dictator, and I did not expect him to offer up amnesty. That's this is not necessarily an amnesty as one would understand the world in the sense that it is not a blanket pardon. Those who had received a life sentence, for example, would be imprisoned um, for 20 years. Those who had received the death sentence would see that reduced to ter- serving out a life sentence. Ah, I see. <laughs> so, I think someone doesn't really know what the word amnesty means. Slow down there, Rainbow Bright. That's going to leave your re-election chances vulnerable to being soft on crime. I guess to Assad, amnesty is probably just the return address on all the junk mail he throws out. Last Friday, Defense Secretary Robert Gates went to Brussels to scold European nations to spend more on their militaries or to risk the collective military irrelevance of NATO. It's about time for that irrelevance. The U.S. and Britain brought NATO into existence after the end of World War II for one particular reason, to prevent the Soviet Union from invading Western Europe. Once the Soviet Union dissolved two decades ago, NATO's entire reason for being was rendered obsolete. But instead of mothballing the organization, the U.S. insisted that NATO take on a new role, providing a fig leaf for U.S. interventions anywhere around the globe, whether it be in Iraq, Afghanistan, or Libya. 
having nothing to do with the security of the North Atlantic, there's no logical reason why the North Atlantic Treaty Organization should be straying so far from home. No reason except power politics. And since the U.S. resents having to go to the U.N. for approval of its military actions, NATO has provided a convenient mask of multinational support. But now the Europeans don't want to distort their economies like we do with bloated military budgets, and they seem less interested in dominating the world than we are. For Gates, the old Cold Warrior apparatchik, that's downright disturbing. And that's why he threw a fit in Brussels. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Hey everyone, let me just interrupt for a moment to let you know that you really, really need to stick around to the end of today's show to hear what I have to say in my final comments. You know, if you're one of those people who doesn't catch every one of those uh, bits of final comments, I totally understand, but this cannot be one of those times. Very important things going on. I pre-announced that I'd be making this announcement on the previous episode. I'm continuing to pre-announce it now. And, you know, the announcement, it may seem small at first glance, but... It is honestly small in the same way that a tiny key can open a giant door. I feel really strongly about this, so please stick around and hear all about it. Finally, journalists covering the NATO war in Libya seem keenly interested in writing stories about the laughable PR of the Qaddafi regime, who can't even manage to convincingly show civilian casualties to foreign reporters. Here are some headlines we saw on June 6th and June 7th. Libya stokes its machine-generating propaganda. Libya's PR efforts are falling short. Libya officials put a spin on conflict. Libya government fails to prove claims of NATO casualties. It was interesting then to see a report in the LA Times on June 9th from the scene of what would certainly appear to be a NATO bombing of one of Gaddafi's tents. Here's what the Times reported, quote, A NATO official reached in Naples, Italy late Wednesday emphasized that the Western alliance does not target people for killings, and the official would not confirm that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization warplanes had even struck the site Tuesday. It doesn't sound like that would be the subject of our attention, so I'm not sure what you were shown there, said the official, who, under NATO rules, could not be identified by name. Close quote. We probably didn't even bomb that, and we don't target people, but don't use my real name. That is how the pros do PR. Those Libyans sure could use a lesson in propaganda. Just weeks after U.S. operatives took out Osama bin Laden, British MI6 agents made an attack of their own in Al-Qaeda. They hacked onto an online magazine and replaced bomb-making instructions there with what? Oh, God, yeah, it was um, uh, it was like a recipe for brownies or something. Close it enough. Was, it, it was a cupcake recipe. Cupcakes, that's yes. it, yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Of course, if you've ever had any British... Cupcakes. I'm sticking with the bomb. They were wise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Any jihadist who went to the website to get the bomb instructions would click the link only to find that they had downloaded, this is true, Ellen DeGeneres' Best Cupcake in America recipe. <laughs> this both removed dangerous information from the hands of terrorists and helped build Ellen's demographic in an audience that she has traditionally found hard to reach. <laughs> Come for the cupcakes, jihadis. Stay for the crazy dancing. The message well, shit fattens them up so that they're easier to spot with drones. Yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> death to America, more like death to my hips. Am I so right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> the message may not have caught on. Shortly after this cyber attack, U.S. forces in Afghanistan encountered an improvised frosted device on the side of the road. Uh, Captain, I believe it has sprinkles. Is that, uh, that dangerous? It's only a matter of time before they resort to Twinkies, and then we're in big trouble. You know why? Because those things last for years. That's true. I mean, there are Twinkies in Afghanistan that the Russians left there in 1975. Still good, though. Still good. President Obama is in continual violation of the War Powers Act. The 90 days are up on his unauthorized use of military force, and yet the U.S. military remains very much involved in the ongoing bombing of Libya. Now, I've always been bothered by the War Powers Act because I thought Congress was giving up its sole authority to declare war and thereby giving the president too much leeway. But Obama seems to think he can blow right by the stop signs that the War Powers Act put up. Libya wasn't an imminent threat against the United States, so Obama had no right under the War Powers Act to launch the air attack. That was blown stop sign number one. Obama then didn't get authorization from Congress within 60 days of hostilities as required. That was blown stop sign number two. And now Obama hasn't brought the military home 30 days later as the law requires. That's blown stop sign number three. White House lawyers say that because the bombers are at no risk of being shot down, since Libya's air defenses have been wiped out, then the War Powers Act doesn't apply. Well, under this argument, the president could go bomb any country in the world that didn't have surface-to-air missiles or a decent air force. The Peace Prize winner keeps finding new ways to justify more wars. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. 
pop quiz in the United States of America. Who has the authority to declare war? Answer, your United States Congress, of course. Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution lists all the things that Congress has the power to do. The 11th thing listed, Clause 11, uh, is the power to declare war. Now, we haven't actually declared war since, I think, World War II. Uh, that said, we have waged plenty of wars. And after Vietnam, Congress passed something called the War Powers Resolution to not only affirm its constitutional role in getting us into wars, but also to affirm their own ability to stop presidents from getting us into wars without Congress. Presidents, understandably, do not like the War Powers Resolution. It passed over Nixon's veto, in fact, but it did pass, and it is law. It says that if a president cannot get Congress to authorize some particular war, that war can't go on for more than 60 days. And yes, you are right. There has been no congressional authorization for what the United States is doing in Libya. No authorization at any point. That said, our 60 days has been up since May 20th. So is it legal? Today the White House explained why they think it is legal, why they think they are cool with it. Why we are, what we are doing in Libya is, is okay, according to the administration, even though Congress hasn't authorized it. I'm not sure if there was anybody who saw this argument from them coming, uh, but the administration's explanation was a big surprise to me. Their argument, their explanation for why this is legal is that the war in Libya is not a war. The language of this law specifically restricts when and how the president can introduce the U.S. armed forces, quote, into hostilities. According to the White House today, what we are doing in Libya, not that hostile. And I quote, we are not saying the president can take the country into war on his own. We are not saying the war powers resolution is unconstitutional or should be scrapped, or that we can refuse to consult Congress. We are saying the limited nature of this particular mission in Libya is not the kind of hostilities envisioned by the war powers resolution. So said the State Department today. So because we are in a support role, because we're not leading what NATO is doing in Libya, this isn't a U.S. war. And even though war powers are granted to Congress, it doesn't matter, it doesn't apply here. That's the White House's argument against what is turning out to be bipartisan and increasingly aggressive pushback on U.S. involvement in Libya. Just the latest sign of that pushback, a lawsuit against the administration calling the Libya war illegal that was filed by 10 members of Congress today. But these politics around issues like this are not just limited to Libya. It is getting more popular in Congress now to oppose the war in Afghanistan as well. The number of House Republicans publicly opposing the Afghanistan war has tripled in the last year. A bipartisan group of 27 senators sent a letter to the president today calling for a sizable and sustained troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. And the Afghanistan issue is, is surfacing in a big way in Republican presidential politics as well. John Huntsman, as we described earlier in the show, John Huntsman is due to announce his campaign on Tuesday. Huntsman says the two platforms of his presidential run will be the debt and getting out of Afghanistan. That'll be one of the two things on which he is going to run for president. We will see in Republican politics, in the Republican primary politicking, how well that platform is going to go over. His campaign manager, you will recall, was John McCain's campaign manager, too. So apparently they think, they think this is going to resonate. They think they've got a winner with this issue. Mitt Romney also floated an anti-Afghanistan position in the debate this week. Uh, weirdly, Mr. Romney described Afghanistan as a war of independence. Nobody really knows what he meant by that. Uh, but he did make noises about ending the Afghanistan war. It's time for us to bring our troops home as soon as we possibly can, consistent with the, the uh, word that comes from our generals that we can hand the country over. To that one person applauding liked that.
whether moved by uh, principles they forgot they had during the George W. Bush era or by partisan antipathy for Barack Obama, Republicans are now joining the long-standing Democratic critique of America's war-making Jones. This, of course, is driving nuts old-school Republicans who never met a war they didn't like. Lindsey Graham, for example, today denounced Mitt Romney as being like Jimmy Carter for saying he wanted to end the war in Afghanistan. Ooh. This is a super interesting split right down the middle of Republican politics right now. Whether it means we will have a new national politics about America's propensity for war making, I think that is the most interesting unanswered question of the year so far. I got a girl in the war, man, I wonder what it is we've done. Paul said to Pete, you gotta push yourself a little harder. And the death from above is a dragon and your feet are on fire But I got a girl in the war, Paul, the only thing I know to do Is turn up the music and pray she can make it through Tonight, President Obama revealed his plans for Afghanistan And I have T-voted, so don't tell me how the war ends with Osama bin Laden continuing his crowd-pleasing death, many in Congress are pressuring the president to end the war. Unfortunately, we can't just dump Afghanistan into the ocean. But there is a quick way out of this war, and it brings us to tonight's word. The defining moment. Congress isn't angry about just Afghanistan, folks. They're also upset about Libya. There is growing bipartisan frustration in Washington this morning over the president's handling of military action in Libya and his decision not to seek authorization from Congress under the War Powers Resolution. You have many members of Congress. We're talking Republicans. We're talking Speaker John Boehner. But we're also talking a lot of liberal Democrats telling President Obama that they think he should be seeking congressional authorization. At issue here is the 1973 War Powers Resolution which like many things from the 70s is totally irrelevant but refuses to go away. <laughs> you see, back then, liberals were upset because President Nixon was secretly bombing Cambodia and he didn't tell Congress. Hey, the guy was busy. So, Congress passed a law requiring the president to inform them within 48 hours of beginning a military mission and requiring their approval to continue that mission past 90 days. Well, Libya's 90 days was up last week, and Obama told Congress to suck it. <laughs> finally, finally, folks, I like this because he is finally acting presidential. You see, Obama sent a clear message that the War Powers Resolution does not apply to these hostilities because they're not hostilities. Our current actions in Libya, or in this mission, do not fall under the War Powers Resolution because they do not meet the threshold of hostilities as envisioned by the War Powers Resolution. The mission that we're engaged in does not meet the hostilities threshold. Yeah, it doesn't meet the hostilities threshold. It isn't even hostile. It's more like laser-guided constructive criticism. <laughs> Besides, folks, there are no troops on the ground, and a lot of this is being done by remotely piloted drones. And the pilots are sitting safely at Air Force bases back in Nevada. So you see, 
No Americans are in harm's way. It's just flying robots killing Libyans. You know, peace. Of course, Sec Def Gates likes to put it another way. The way I like to put it is, from our standpoint at the Pentagon, we're involved in a limited kinetic operation. If I'm in Gaddafi's palace, I suspect I think I'm at war. And if Congress says we're at war, they're siding with Gaddafi. I think Congress might need a little limited kinetic talking to. I say, I say instead of some half-assed measure like bringing home 33,000 troops over the next two years, Obama could end the Afghan war tonight by calling it something else. Now, of course, of course, limited kinetic operation is already taken by Libya, so Afghanistan could be called a targeted armament disbursement, or a mobile tactical munitions deployment, or a heavily armed semester abroad. <laughs> Whatever. Anything but war. In fact, folks, using the executive power of meaningless semantics, President Obama could end all wars. Then... <laughs> Then Obama will finally have earned his Nobel Peace Prize. Or more accurately, his Nobel Limited Kinetic Operation Prize. So we bring the nation building back here at home, not in Afghanistan. That's going to be a very popular message for the American people to hear. I was heartened to hear it. Everything is great. Now we get to the most important part, which is what he said in the beginning. How many troops is he taking out? Now let me lay out the possibilities for you before this, uh, this speech. They said uh, the lowest possibility was 10,000 troops uh, taken out at the end of this year. Uh, and then the second possibility was the middle ground approach, 20,000 troops uh, taken out by the end of this year and uh, 50,000 was the highest possibility. Biden was pushing 50,000. Of course, the war opponents were pushing 50,000. The Pentagon was pushing 10,000 because they want to stay there as long as humanly possible, right? So, what was the conclusion? Let's watch, clip 11. For this reason, in one of the most difficult decisions that I've made as president, I ordered an additional 30,000 American troops into Afghanistan. When I announced this surge at West Point, we set clear objectives to refocus on al-Qaeda, to reverse the Taliban's momentum, and train Afghan security forces to defend their own country. I also made it clear that our commitment would not be open-ended and that we would begin to draw down our forces this July. Tonight, I can tell you that we are fulfilling that commitment. Thanks to our extraordinary men and women in uniform, our civilian personnel, and our many coalition partners, we are meeting our goals. As a result, starting next month, we will be able to remove 10,000 of our troops from Afghanistan by the end of this year, and we will bring home a total of 33,000 troops by next summer, fully recovering the surge I announced at West Point. 
After this initial reduction, our troops will continue coming home at a steady pace as Afghan security forces move into the lead. Our mission will change from combat to support. By 2014, this process of transition will be complete and the Afghan people will be responsible for their own security. Oopsie doopsie. Turns out he chose not the middle ground, which is what I suspected, but what the reporters coming out of Washington said. He chose the lowest amount of withdrawal. He just can't stand up to the Pentagon. Can't do it. Okay. And so, you know, by the time he leaves office, he'll have withdrawn the 33,000 of his last surge. But let me show you a graph and show you where we'll be when President Obama leaves office. Do you know that when he came into office, we had 32,800 troops? You can see it right there on the graph, right? Inauguration Day uh, in January of 2009. Right now, we're at 98,000. Some have it at actually slightly higher number. Um, that was September 2010, actually. We're now near 99, 100,000 troops. Okay, the proposed withdrawal of President Obama in December of 2012, when he leaves office, puts us at 65,000 troops. That is double the number of troops when President Obama took office. So what kind of exit is this? So I thought we were leaving. What happened? It turns out you, by the end of your term, by the end of four years in office, the guy who was supposed to wrap up the wars has actually doubled the number of troops in Afghanistan and will let him stay there. And then he says, well, at some point, in some way, we will wrap it up by 2014. First of all, 2014 is a magic number for President Obama. Everything gets wrapped up in 2014. Health insurance comes in, we leave Afghanistan, etc. Why is that the number? A couple of reasons. Because it's so far out, he doesn't have to take responsibility for it. He can tell the Pentagon, oh, come on, man, let me leave like three, four years from now. It's going to be okay, etc. And number two, you think we're going to leave in 2014? Well, that depends. First of all, if President Obama wins, is he going to keep his promise? Or is the Pentagon going to come in and go, oh my God, no, you don't understand, we were going to leave, but it's so bad, and we really need to help the Af Afghanis, Afghans, I should say, et cetera, et cetera, maybe, right? But that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, a Republican wins, and comes in and goes, yeah, we're reversing everything President Obama did. Your health care uh, coverage by 2014, not going to happen. Leaving Afghanistan by 2014, not going to happen. <laughs> Reducing uh, or getting rid of the Bush tax cuts? not gonna happen right so are we really leaving Afghanistan at the end of the speech you get a big kind of ah oh, this is part of our problems with Obama let's go you know the war's useless look last thing on this think about it man there are kids who are gonna go over there from our country and who are gonna lose limbs who are gonna die between now and 2014 for what for what if we already decided counterinsurgency is the wrong way to go, if all we're trying to do is prevent safe havens, and we do that with predator strikes in Yemen, in Pakistan, etc., and sometimes we send in special forces, as President, Vice President Biden wants us to do in Afghanistan, why are those kids dying in Afghanistan? What are you trying to accomplish? He thinks, in his mind, because Obama believes in such little change, he thinks, well, what are you talking about? I, I'm going to wrap up America's longest war three years from now. Am I not merciful? Well, no, you're not merciful. That change, as always, is not quick enough. Why are you going to let all those kids die there for no reason for three more years? 
There's no Al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan. What are we doing there? And we just killed bin Laden. What are we doing there? So, look forward to much more war. And, you know, today on uh, the MSNBC show, I suggested the idea that uh, it's possible that the defense contractors influence the Pentagon because they love big wars, longer wars, right? They don't like the little strikes. They don't make enough money on that. They like big, long wars, right? And I said that that might be influencing policy. You should have seen heads exploding. Both the Democratic strategists and the Republican strategists were like, what? No, those are our generals. We, we just salute and we say, how long do we have to stay in the war? Would you keep us safe? Keep us safe. Okay, let's, how, many, how many billions do I have to give to Lockheed Martin? Raytheon, what do you need? Halliburton, what do you need? Salute, salute, salute. Okay, now I'm tired of saluting. Get them out of there, man. Our kids are dying. And we're wasting all that money in there. Okay. As you can tell, I'm a little worked up about it. And by the way, the American people totally agree with me. 56% saying, get, get, we got to get out of there right away. A little less than an hour ago, President Obama addressed the nation from the East Room of the White House. He announced his plans to withdraw 33,000 U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September of next year. Uh, 10,000 troops will come out by the end of this year. Uh, the rest of the 33,000 will come out by the end of next summer. And then, frankly, no change in plans. A further continuation of the U.S. war in Afghanistan uh, for years to come. We will be able to remove 10,000 of our troops from Afghanistan by the end of this year. And we will bring home a total of 33,000 troops by next summer, fully recovering the surge I announced at West Point. After this initial reduction, our troops will continue coming home at a steady pace as Afghan security forces move into the lead. Our mission will change from combat to support. By 2014, this process of transition will be complete. Although this has been headlined all day everywhere as a big troop withdrawal, it's important to note that this 15-month drawdown plan that the president outlined tonight, this is only to draw down the extra troops that President Obama sent in when we last heard from him on this subject in December 2009. This is just drawing down the surge. Uh, here's what our troop presence in Afghanistan has looked like over the last decade. Wow, decade, you can really say that. Uh, when President Obama was sworn into office, January 2009, there were about 34,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Uh, Mr. Obama, of course, campaigned overtly on the fact that he was going to scale up the war in Afghanistan, and he very much kept that promise. He increased troop levels, look at that, increased troop levels in Afghanistan quite dramatically. So much so that by August 2010, the U.S. had 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. This big withdrawal that President Obama announced tonight, this big drawdown of troops, here's what that looks like. 
By September of next year, we will have about double the number of troops in Afghanistan that we had when President Obama was sworn into office, with troops to remain in Afghanistan for three and a half years from now. The war in Afghanistan is not ending any faster than we thought it was going to before tonight. The war in Afghanistan is not ending any faster than we thought it was going to before Osama bin Laden was killed. Here's what the president said tonight about why we will still have 66,000 troops there with a years-long horizon as of the end of next summer. We'll have to do the hard work of keeping the gains that we've made while we draw down our forces and transition responsibility for security to the Afghan government. Our mission will change from combat to support. By 2014, this process of transition will be complete, and the Afghan people will be responsible for their own security. The Afghanistan war is going on 10 years now. If it were a kid, it would be in the fifth grade. What President Obama announced tonight was not the end of that 10-year war, although he talked about it ending someday. What he talked about tonight, though, what he really outlined, what he actually gave a plan for, is just the end of a surge in troops in that 10-year war. I mean, we know what it looks like when wars end, even when long wars end, even when long, unpopular wars end. This is the U.S. military spending in Iraq over the last decade, up, 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 until about, actually about 2009, when Barack Obama was sworn into office, and then way, way back down. That's what it looks like to end a war. You want to see what this same time period, this graph looks like when it comes to Afghanistan? Yeah. At some point, supporting fewer troops and transitioning out of combat operations should start to turn that graph around. But it's not yet. And the president is saying plan on three and a half more years in Afghanistan. For the first time since Pew started polling on the Afghanistan war, a majority of Americans now say that U.S. troops should be brought home as soon as possible. That number took a, that recent spike, so it got up over a clear majority, right after U.S. forces killed Osama bin Laden last month. At that point, 48% of Americans said, get out. After we killed bin Laden, that number's now up to 56% and apparently climbing. And that's not only because it is a new modern axiom of modern American politics that if you kill bin Laden, you get more leeway to do stuff you might not have done before. See Leon Panetta, 100 to nothing. But the American public connecting the killing of Osama bin Laden to a willingness to leave Afghanistan, that may very well also be a result of the way that President Obama has characterized this war for years now. Not as a war of nation building or of bringing democracy to the Afghan people, but he has narrowly defined it, narrowly and explicitly and repeatedly defined it as going after al-Qaeda, disrupting, dismantling, and defeating al-Qaeda, right? How many times have we heard him say that? When you describe a war repeatedly that way, and then you kill the head of al-Qaeda, understandably people think that we can maybe leave that war, but we are not leaving. The goal that we seek is achievable and can be expressed simply. No safe haven from which al-Qaeda or its affiliates can launch attacks against our homeland or our allies. We won't try to make Afghanistan a perfect place. We will not police its streets or patrol its mountains indefinitely. That is the responsibility of the Afghan government, which must step up its ability to protect its people and move from an economy shaped by war to one that can sustain a lasting peace. What we can do and will do is build a partnership with the Afghan people that endures, one that ensures that we will be able to continue targeting terrorists and supporting a sovereign 
Afghan government. I, I rarely um, get to the end of a major policy address by this president and feel like what I want is more information. President Obama's policy speeches tend to be detailed. They tend to be rather heavy on the specifics, whether or not they also include the kind of oratory for, Mr., uh, for which Mr. Obama is famous. But tonight, after 13 minutes on why the killing of Osama bin Laden means no real substantive change in the plan for three and a half more years of American war in Afghanistan, after those 13 minutes of hearing from the president, mostly what I have is a list of questions. I mean, is there going to be a, a combat operations in Afghanistan have ended announcement like there was in Iraq, where in, in troops are still in that country, but they are in a support capacity only? That was a pretty stark dividing line in Iraq. Might that happen in Afghanistan? And if so, how soon might that happen? When the president says the goal now is that extremists should not be able to launch from Afghanistan attacks on us or on our allies, when he says allies, does he mean Pakistan? Because people launching cross-border attacks between Afghanistan and Pakistan, I think that is something that a U.S. presence isn't going to stop in 13 more years, let alone three more years. Does the president care that the public is almost uniformly in favor of getting U.S. troops out and fast? Those numbers are much higher than they once were, but he's not changing his plan. Does he care about public opinion on this? And if he doesn't, why doesn't he? As promised, a brief comment about Afghanistan and our future there, and the analogy was apt when I first used it in November 2009, and I think it's apt tonight. Mr. President, you must take the advice that Senator Aiken the Republican gave to President Lyndon Johnson about Vietnam, you must declare victory and get out. As of the escalation, more than a year and a half ago, our men and women there were at risk from the Taliban, from the brigands who constituted the Afghan government, from the election fixer Karzai, and from what the National Security Advisor estimated at the time was only about eight dozen members of al-Qaeda. The only people we were not fighting were the citizens of Afghanistan, yet all the polling done there indicated that the only people those citizens thought we were fighting were them. We were, in their eyes, an occupying force. That the whole thing has not blown up in our face because of that is both providential and testimonial to the bravery and, moreover, the common sense of our troops and leaders on the ground. Mr. President, don't press your luck. Do not take the proposal that lets you set the ultimate end date but lets the Pentagon control the echelons of drawing down. Select the door with the easiest access that allows the most Americans to come home the fastest. Anything less will still be that Joseph Heller Catch-22 or M.C. Escher version of an exit strategy, the one that began with entering further and then becomes staying longer. As I said in 2009, lose to win, sink to swim, escalate to disengage. Because there is still, sir, what President Eisenhower so insightfully called our military-industrial complex. 
the Pentagon and the ex-Pentagoners amid the defense contractors. And for them, war is a business. And like all businessmen, they will do whatever is necessary to make a profit. No one here, Mr. President, is accusing you of participating in this. But every day that we are still in Afghanistan and Iraq and now Libya, another piece of the certainty that you would never participate in it gets a little rusty. Get the troops out, sir. To Senator Aiken's famous advice, you can in a very real way answer, we can declare victory. We got through a rainstorm without an umbrella and without getting wet. Don't press your luck, Mr. President. Don't press ours. Afghanistan. Last night, the president addressed the nation from the East Room of the White House, or as it's been officially renamed, the I Killed Bin Laden Room. <laughs> Personally, I thought it was in poor taste for them to put up the championship banner. <laughs> anyway, you've all heard the headlines. He has ordered a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which means Obama's a coward for leaving, or for not leaving sooner, I forget which. But the real shocker, folks, was where he's wasting our blood and treasure next. America, it is time to focus on nation building here at home. What? <laughs> but we, we tried nation building in Afghanistan. It took us 10 years to get out. Do we really want to get sucked into another quagmire? <laughs> I mean, think of the challenges. It's a country with crumbling infrastructure, a barely functioning democracy, large areas completely beyond the government's control, and with a population of poorly educated, heavily armed religious extremists who hate their government. And I don't even know how to describe the stomach-churning human rights abuses. So please, please, think before you try nation-building here, Mr. President, because if you break it, you bought it. And I don't want to see America become America's Vietnam. Thanks for listening, everyone. Now, are you ready for this? I have an announcement to make, and it has been pre-announced. It has been post-pre-announced via email, and now this is the real thing. This is the real announcement coming. I hope you're ready. Before I get to it, though, <laughs> I, I have some backstory before I get to the announcement, and the backstory starts with the question. The question is, are you aware that this program actually has a mission statement, and not only does it have one, but it has been the same mission statement consistently all along. It is, uh, I have had this exact same statement in place since before the show started, and it goes like this. The mission of Best of the Left is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media. It's beautiful, right? I mean, it's concise, eloquent, everything you could want in a mission statement. And so let's unpack that for a moment. To aggregate 
that's pretty simple, right? I mean, like I kind of, that's basically my job. I listen to unhealthy amounts of media, pick out all the best parts, uh, aggregate the best of what I find. You know, that's what I do and amplify. And that's, that's what I want to focus on today. So when I amplify the best of what I hear, basically what that has always meant is that I, I make this show. I, I make it sound as good as I possibly can in the hopes that many, many people will listen to it and they will hear things that they would not have heard otherwise. So uh, recently, maybe six months ago, somewhere in that neighborhood, I got the idea to try to increase the amount of amplification this show is capable of. And that idea basically hinged around making the individual clips available to, you know, download individually, as you might imagine. And uh, so I thought if, if they were available individually, then they would be easier to share. Um, you, you know, you could pass along a single clip to someone rather than saying, hey, I heard this thing, check out this hour-long show. Uh, you know, because it's it's a hard sell to get someone to check out an hour-long show. And especially if you just want them to hear one part of it. Say, check out this show and fast forward to minute 47. You know, like it's it's tough. So, you know, about six months ago, you may recall, I began putting up the individual clips to, uh, of this program on YouTube. And you may also recall that I talked about it for a little while. And you know, I, I continued doing it, but I, I didn't really keep talking about it that much. And the reason is that that was only step one. All along, there's been a plan for step two that has simply taken longer than expected, but is now in place. Step two is uh, kind of, as I said in the middle of the show, it's like the key that opens the door. And so what I've done now is I've fully integrated social media with those individual clips in the show notes of this and every future episode that I'll be producing. Now, let's go back to a little bit more backstory. So, you know, why why do I do this show? What, what made me start doing the show in the first place? Well, I listened to a lot of radio, and I heard lots of great stuff, and I wanted to share it. I just thought, like, this is so good, I can't just, I can't hold it in, and I'm not talented enough to be able to remember everything I hear to then go and, like, tell my friends about it. So I thought, like, I, I have to figure out a way to, you know, actually share the real clips that I love so dearly with other people because I, I feel like they need to be heard. And so I have this instinct inside of me that drives me to do this, which is why I do this show. And what I'm betting on is that the vast majority of you have that exact same instinct. And for those of you who do have that instinct, I want to make it absolutely as easy as possible for you to fulfill that desire. So, you know, you you listen to this show and you hear lots of great things and I'm sure that you think to yourself that you should share those things with other people and that's exactly what I want you to do. So let's think about, you know, who this show affects, you know, in, in its entirety. There's me, I make the show. There's you, you listen to the show. And then there are co the content producers who, uh, you know, produce their original source, uh, source material. And I take it and help amplify it so more people hear it. And what I think every one of us would like is for this content to be heard more. The original content producers would love to have it heard more. I would like to have it heard more. And I would like to have my own show heard more. And I'm betting that you would like to play a part in that 
and uh, take an active role in helping spread the word about these sorts of things. So what I'm going to ask you to do is after every episode you hear or whenever you have the chance, I want you to go to my website, bestoftheleft.com, and look in the show notes for you know the shows that you've heard and simply select the clips that you liked the most and share them. So right now, uh, the system is plugged into Facebook and Twitter. You can send emails really easily through the system as well. And there's a whole variety of other places you could share, but those are the big ones, right? And so imagine what this can mean, frankly. So there are thousands of you, and cumulatively, you easily have hundreds of thousands of connections on your social networks that you can share this content to. And so what's going to happen is if you and everyone else listening comes, participates in this, you do your little part and everyone else does theirs, this content will be heard by an incredible number of people. I am positive of this. And so what that means is the original source creators, they'll be happy because their content's getting heard more. Those individuals will be happy because they'll have heard stuff that they would have missed otherwise. Some percentage of those people will then also find this show, which I think those of us listening would agree is a good thing. And in turn, because they will have found this show, they will then turn around and become media activists themselves. They will then uh, begin sharing clips on their social networks, which will only increase the number of people who hear the clips only increasing the number of people who find this show, and so on and so on, in absolute perpetuity. It is easily the most virtuous cycle I think I have ever heard of. So by this point, I am positive that you understand why I'm so excited about this idea. And I mean, it, and it really comes down to the fact that until basically this moment, the process has always been me, the show, the listeners, and that's where it stops. And now we have this chance to use this incredible base of support that the show already enjoys and have the process go for all this great content that we all love to go through me, through the show, to the listeners, and then have all of those listeners turn around and become their own miniature amplifier, which all together is way, way, way more powerful than anything I could ever produce, like almost by definition. And keep in mind that you never know who you're going to reach. You never know who's going to hear the stuff that you help promote and what change that's going to cause in their lives. The only thing that you can be sure of is that something will happen. Someone's going to hear it. Someone's going to see it and they will be impacted by it. And that's an incredibly good feeling. I get that feeling every single time I make this show, and I want desperately to share in that feeling with you. So it's really simple, and you can try it out right now. Just head to bestoftheleft.com, and uh, you'll see the easy share links. Uh, the, the, the links themselves are actually divided up, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, email, and other. And actually clicking on any one of those allows you to, you know, send messages through all of them simultaneously. It could literally take as, as few as two clicks per clip that you wish to share. And that's, that's how easy it can be. 
So check that out now and get ready to get in the habit of doing that from here on out. I think this is an absolutely pivotal moment of fundamental change in how powerful this show can be. So now, of course, to thank a couple of the people who make it possible, I want to thank uh, members Michael S., who signed up for a Leftist Monthly membership back on March 10th, and Robert S., who signed up just uh, a couple of days ago on June 28th. But how can you not uh, push him all the way to the the top of the list uh, when he signs up as the second ever uh, Satanist-level member uh, and signed up for a full year in advance. He is uh, treacherously close to showing up on uh, Glenn Beck's chalkboard. I just know it. Uh, so good luck with that, Robert. But huge thanks, obviously, to Michael and Robert and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show incredibly easily now simply by sharing the links to individual clips on their social networking sites. Links to do that are on the blog. You can stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shiny shoe